Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the honor of speaking with Dexter Nelson. Dexter is a legendary athletic therapist. For many years, Dexter served in various roles at Mount Royal College, including instructing and acting as chair of various academic committees and departments. He was co-founder of the Canadian Pro Rodeo Sports Medicine team on which he served for 25 years. He was the founding president of the Alberta Athletic Therapist Association, as well as the Alberta Sports Medicine Council. He served as the president of the Canadian Athletic Therapist Association from 1984 to 86, as well as having served on numerous committees within the organization throughout his career. In his later years in practice, he was an important part of the development of the relationship between the Canadian Athletic Therapist Association and the National Athletic Trainers Association in the United States, and has served on several committees in this regard. He's been awarded numerous recognitions by various organizations representing athletic therapy and sports medicine, perhaps the most honorable of which was his induction into the CATA Hall of Fame. He is retired now and enjoys working a family-established ranch in Carsland, Alberta, which he owns. He's been married to his wife for over 45 years and has three kids and seven grandchildren. I'm honored to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Dexter. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate your kind words. Well, you know, it's funny, but you know, it, it, I can sort of see you, but I can't see you. It's funny you're in darkness, so that's good. Um, you... You and I, you don't even know when I first met you, but I first met you, you mentioned the, or in your bio that you were uh, president from 84 to 86. And 1986 was the first CATA conference I ever went to. And you were the president and you were uh, running the AGM. And I remember it was a very cantankerous AGM. There was a fellow that uh, people may know if they're in the CATA named Joe Piccinini, who was taking you to task at the front of the hall. And I remember you poignantly managing him and his character. And that drew me to you from the day that I first met you. So, you know, when you recall that moment or that day, do you, do you, does it even re- register in your memory banks or is it more just something that I have uh, uniquely connected to? <laughs> no, you know, Scotty, thanks. Uh, I can tell you at that meeting, I, I pulled a Glenn Hall and a Glenn Hall means <laughs> that as a goalie for the, uh, Chicago Blackhawks before every game he would usually go in the bathroom and throw up so I don't n- normally have pre-event anxiety I've been a wrestler and a rugby player and I can take bumps and bruises but I can tell you going into that AGM I uh, I was quite anxious because it becomes very complicated and on one hand where as a as a leader you need to balance things out and cause a, a good flow to the conversation and really out good outcomes from the event. Mm. It also, you have your personality you have to deal with. And when you're not happy with things, you still have to manage that. And, mm. and I did, and I tried. Mm. Well, I thought you managed it really well. I was struck when I first met you about your, your, your clarity of you sort you, you always have, have a comfort in your opinion and sharing it, but at the same time, um, what I what I've always regarded as a, a sensitivity of how you share it, so that there's this sense that you're not you're not there to offend, you're there to um, incite, you know, thought. And I'm wondering where you know is that something that you've always uh, resonated or connected with, or even recognized in yourself, and if so. When did you maybe you first recognize that? I think it was a developed skill because as a young person, <clears throat> you tend to repeat things that other people talk about 
for example, in your family. So if your family has an opinion on a certain issue and then you talk to another person and they say, no, that's not the way it goes. It's completely different. After a while, I, I swam in a sea of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> you know, it became painful because you really wanted to know, am I right? Am I wrong? Should I just keep my mouth closed? And I think one of the favorite sayings would be, seek first to understand, then be understood. And if you don't analyze the problem accurately, it's like in medicine. Mm. Uh, you need an accurate diagnosis followed by an accurate treatment protocol. If you don't understand what people are saying, and if you don't listen, you can't analyze what the problem is. Mm. So I learned painfully at an early age to listen, analyze, and then play it back. And if it's accurate, people will nod their heads and agree. And if it isn't, then you get spanked and you go back and you rethink what you've thought about. Mm. Let's go back for a second before we get into sort of some of that philosophical uh, belief system. You grew up in Alberta on a, on a farm or a ranch or did, how did you grow up? Where were you? Uh... I grew up on a farm yeah. near Carsland, Alberta. Now, my great grandfather came from ultimately England to Ottawa and he homesteaded in Calgary in 1879. He was part of a survey crew for the Canadian Pacific Railroad. Mm. So there's a history from that side. My dad's side of the family came from Denmark to Iowa and then to Carsland to Alberta when it was the uh, start of when the settlers started to take over from the cattle barons in Alberta. So to make a long story short, you know, I am academic, so I, I just ramble and talk, Scott. But the, the bottom line is, yes, I grew up on a farm in Alberta. And how did that shape you, being a farm boy? Uh, you know, in the old days, now that I'm in my dotage, but uh, we, we lived in the old farmhouse, which had a dirt cellar. And I can tell you that there weren't any social safety nets. And when we got hailed out, and my, my parents and my mother in particular would tell us stories about the dirty 30s. So we came from a point... We were schooled in the concept of scarcity. Mm. And when life was good, it was great. And when it wasn't, uh, we went to the trunk, got out the, the mothball clothes and said, we're going to have to tough it out. Mm. So, and I, I have to also confess that I've learned, maybe it's natural, but I've learned to be a contrarian. Mm. And so, so if people say, we're all going to run in this direction, and I typically say, eh, I don't think so. I'm going to rethink that one. And uh, I, I've got a great quote for you, Scotty. <laughs> and a contrarian, according to the psychologist, it has ODD syndrome, and that's called oppositional defiant disorder. And I guess... <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I'm guilty of, but if you but if you tell me X is X, I'll I'll ask. So okay, well, what if it isn't? So you know, I'm kind of those people that ruins conversations at a cocktail party. <laughs> that's that's your character, or is that a developed skill? <laughs> I would say both. That's both. I, <laughs> you know, it's good. It's like they say, "What's good luck?" That's uh, preparation plus opportunity. I think I'm guilty of both of those. <laughs> So what draws you then, like, obviously you're a farm boy, are you an athlete, are you playing sports, uh, what's, what's uh, your physical uh, life like in, in those days? Our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com, is going virtual. The Reconditioning Level 1 has been turned into a complete online experience, and all the time-tested systems and processes are now available to you in 20 hours of online video modules and two virtual Zoom sessions. Reconditioning is a very powerful language and system of practice that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together in one complete package and helps you deliver the most powerful injury and performance solutions to your clients. Check them out at reconditioninghq.com today and join the reconditioning revolution. Uh, when you live on the farm, we played hardball, baseball in the summer and ice hockey in the wintertime. And it, it was a big deal because in a small community, most of the people that you're connecting with are either neighbors or relatives. So we had to make a team up and that's what we did. And I love baseball, still mm -hmm. do. Uh, I loved hockey, but mm. when you when I went to the University of Calgary, I, when you're competing against people that have multiple years of playing hockey at a much higher level than me, I didn't try out. So what was I? What did I have talent with? Well, wrestling and rugby. 
mm. both combative sports where um, if you run faster and uh, work harder, then you have success. As the old saying in rugby, in my opinion, is you can punch or be punched, but you always punch a little more than you get punched. And I figure that's a good day. You know, it's kind of like golf, Scotty. If I come home with the same ball I started with, I consider that a good day regardless of score. <laughs> You're just not allowed in rugby to ro- run in the opposite direction. So it's counter, <laughs> counterpoints no. to your style. <laughs> no, but you know, the interesting part there was when you would go out and you would be competing and somebody in the other team got a injury. Of course, everybody would stop and expect you or me to go out there and fix it. And that sometimes in the heat of battle was not that easy. Well, you do have to throw the ball backwards. So that is one of the <laughs> <laughs> True. But, but listen, look at soccer and no offense folks to soccer players. I keep saying, pick the ball up and run with it. <laughs> you mentioned um, you were, you, you were an academic. So what draws you to academia rather than being a, a farmer for the rest of your life? Like what draws you to that and gets you to go to school and, and how do you discover athletic therapy? Uh, my dad um, struggled with farming. He was an excellent farmer, but he said, I'm not sure I want you to farm. I'd rather you get a real job. And my mother was a school teacher. And uh, she said, yes, you need to get your education. So and all things being equal, I attended Mount Royal College to do a high school upgrade and then uh, moved on to the phys ed faculty at the University of Calgary, which is now kinesiology, but we did phys ed. So in the phys ed area, your option was, do you want to be a teacher or do you want to be a car salesman? I, I'm exaggerating, so no jokes there. But but the bottom line is, what do you do with a phys ed degree if you're not teaching? So I uh, enjoyed teaching aquatics, swimming. I was a lifeguard, as my wife was. And uh, my first job was really at the University of Calgary, where I was hired as the head athletic trainer or therapist. And I also worked half-time in the swimming pool as the assistant pool supervisor. So that's how I evolved. And, you know, I'll tell you one other story, which is profound in terms of the message my mother gave me as a student um, working uh, in the phys ed faculty as a student trainer and part-time in the equipment room. My mother said, well, you're just a glorified janitor. You know, and I said, thanks a lot, mom, but I do have a future. Yeah. Well, show me. So eventually yeah, I took over in time. Um, I took over as the head, first full-time head athletic therapist at the University of Calgary. I was there for eight years, and then I spent 26 years at Mount Royal. Hmm. You, like, you, you're of a generation that effectively witnessed what I would call the professionalization of that industry, so to speak. Like, you know, when you were growing up, I don't, I mean, you can tell me different, but I don't imagine there were that many, um, you know, people to look up to. And if they were in, in many instances, they were sort of self self created, um, actualized from, you know, somebody had to, somebody had to put the bandaid on or tape the ankle or put the ice bag on or manage this sort of situation. And you've witnessed sort of the professionalization of that. What, Tell me about that. What what have you seen? What has been that experience of looking back on what you grew, grew up in and, and what it is now? We can't grow this podcast without you, the listener, or the support of our amazing sponsors. This year, we are pleased to announce the support of Matrix Fitness, one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations in the world. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix performance team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and getting better. For more information, please request their sports performance package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Vilnev at matrixfitness.com and mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. The, the Canadian Athletic Trainers Association at the time was founded by a group of people who were really most post-war World, II, World War II veterans who had medical training, be it physical therapy, be it 
uh, a medic in the army or whatever. The generation, I always keep saying, you know, there's different waves, but the, the generation I came into was myself, Dale Butterwick, um, Glenn Bergeron. We were the first academically trained group of athletic trainers. To, to make a long story short, the head trainer at the University of Calgary prior to me learned his craft. He had been a farmer in Champion, Alberta, and he had a Kramer three-ring binder how to be an athletic trainer. It was a pretty fundamental. The physician we had at the time was a uh, medical baccalaureate British doctor who had been in the Second World War. And, and that's a whole different story in terms of some of his strong feelings about how the world should run. But uh, uh, that's that's the environment. It was somewhat hostile, actually, mm. to athletic training and athletic therapy. So mm. you, you, you struggled with it all. Uh, you were trying to create an identity. After that, I think the opportunity to work on committees and to show leadership within the CATA probably helped develop for the next generation of students that came through. Mm. When you look back at that time, what what was inspiring about it? In other words, what it, what what kept you in it, and and what was really super challenging about it? I I my specialty was field versus clinic because I liked going places and doing things. Mm. Uh, not to say that clinic doesn't provide that, but um, I traveled three and a half years with the Canadian men's national basketball team. And I quite enjoyed that opportunity. I worked for a year with the Edmonton Eskimos. All of those things related to being on field. You know, what is the old saying that the roar of the crowd and the smell of the grease paint? Well, I, I like the travel and I like to do things. Now travel changes once you become married and have children, but you can argue, um, it should change and sometimes it doesn't. So pro rodeo, for example, I did a fair amount of traveling. And if I have any regrets, honestly, Scott, it's that that took me away from my family probably more than it should. Nevertheless, uh, I have three wonderful children, a beautiful wife, and uh, life is good. Mm. Tell me, about, how did you meet your wife? I, I have to laugh, Scott, because you know the old saying, uh, I was an instructor at Mount Royal and she played volleyball there and I dated one of my athletes and frankly ended up marrying her. <laughs> you know, in today's woke society, <laughs> I would probably be put in jail for that, but nobody complained and uh, neither did she. So we all worked it out. <laughs> she hasn't complained since. <laughs> well, well, so that's another point. I think my wife and I are very complimentary in the sense that we each do things that, that complement our relationship, that she does things I don't do and vice versa. Now, are we perfectly compatible? There's times when you have two strong personalities, compatibility might be an issue, but we've been married now for, well, I guess 46 years. Okay, what's the, what's, give, give all the listeners uh, a few uh, Dexter Nelson secrets on how you, <laughs> how you create a 45 year marital relationship. Oh boy! Do what you're told. I, 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 <laughs> perseverance, <laughs> patience. You know, Scott, having children is one of the most humbling experiences in life because mm -hmm. um, you have to give up part of yourself to make sure everything goes well with them. Mm. And and again, we there are stages in a marriage where things work well, and other times they don't. But the difference between and I, and I can say this honestly between myself and my wife and other folks is that I'm sure we could have thought a million reasons to get divorced, but on the other hand, we didn't. And I'm happy we didn't, uh, or I even contemplated it. And, uh, life is good now. Mm. Tell me about, um, the university of Calgary experience back in those days, like was, was it, challenging in the sense that you had to sort of stake your claim to what you were doing or brought to the table or was there a respect for the value proposition you brought or it was all new and so nobody really knew how to treat this this character that was so-called head therapist I, I it was difficult times uh, we had uh, people who 
thought that we were simply the person that ran out with the bucket and the sponge and had very little training. And yet, uh, because in the CAT at that time, we had an internship where we learned from other people. So Larry Chase, who was the head trainer for the Stampeders, was my mentor at that time. I became an ATA certified at that time and then eventually CATA certified. And, and then when we tried to look at certification within the CATA as a profession, we had a lot of pushback from the physiotherapy profession. Now, uh, some of that was constructive and some of it was not. And however, in the fullness of time, all shall be revealed. And I can tell you that uh, perseverance um, trumps sensitivity in terms of getting things done. That sounds like a Dexterism to me. <laughs> well, you know, I could I could spray you with a bunch of things, but I don't know. We'll see how it goes here. I might throw a few out, Scott. Well, I'll give well, you an example. I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. So, w- one of the interesting things is that in medicine, there's a name for everything, just like the um, being a contrarian. Well, some people. I've defined have a medical, almost a terminal medical problem of a cranial rectal insertion. That's where (laughs) they seem to have their head stuck in their posterior orifice. And if they don't get it out, they aren't going to be able to breathe. So, so that's just some fun things we get to play with. (laughs) Well, I'm actually going to pivot off of that a little bit in the sense that, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, call it dynamic debate on the interweb today about, um, you know, the, the value proposition of the scientific side of what we do as performance professionals and the, like some people like to call it the EQ side or the social psychological, um, you know, relational side of what we do. And, you know, you, one of the reasons why I asked you the question is you, you sort of came from a place in your generation where that scientific side was a very limited element and a lot of it was the 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 relational piece and then over time that part sort of grew and now you have this kind of war almost between the two like what is more important and why is it more important and people getting into all the evidence-based practice and da 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 when you watch that today maybe you don't even watch it you possibly just ignore it but um what is what is your feeling when it comes to being a good practitioner human performance professional, whether that's an athletic therapist, physiotherapist, strength coach, et cetera. Where does, is, do, does your balance and skill lie on the, the, the social human side of things and the scientific side of things? What's in your ZNA? That is a question our sponsor Zenkai Sports has for you. Are you interested in increasing your performance output, helping the environment, and doing less laundry? If you answered yes to any of those questions, please go to ZenkaiSports.com and check out the latest innovation in performance apparel. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping your cooler for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. I would highly recommend trying this amazing product, and I've teamed up with them so you can get 20% off your entire order. Just head over to ZenkaiSports.com and use the discount code LYM20. Uh, That's a great question. So let me give you one example. I attended in Colorado Springs, an advanced electrical modality course. And we were always told that these are life-threatening if they aren't used properly. Well, to make a long story short, we learned that, and the instructors there were saying, you know, half of what happens with this particular modality, we can show evidence through science that these things are happening. He said, the other half, we don't have a clue about. So that, let me... A transition then to um, half of what we do uh, as athletic therapists or in medicine, I think, is we, we're like medical social workers in a sense. We work with people and their problems. So one example would be in Alberta prior, there was a time where you had unlimited funding for physiotherapy services. Then the government says, no, you're only going to get paid for 10 treatments, and if they aren't better by then, too bad. Do you know that half the physio clinic shut down in Alberta? Hmm. So, so the message there was, why were people going there if they weren't getting better after 10 treatments? And it, a lot of it has to do with 
them feeling good about themselves and you helping them do that. Mm -hmm. My daughter actually took the athletic therapy program at Mount Royal. It was a pleasure to teach her. She's now a physiotherapist in Saskatoon. And, and, and in fairness, she said she spends a lot of time working the PR side of uh, connecting with people. That's mm. half the battle if you want to make things work properly. Mm. So to play off of that, I go to you. You sent me sort of a note about, um, you know, your your thoughts on where our conversation might go and this under, you know, what we know and what we don't know and people's opinions on that. Um, there's sort of a, an energy dynamic uh, and the internet has made it kind of almost worse. And in my opinion, I share, I don't share my opinion a lot on this podcast, but from time to time I will. And I think one of the worst things that ever happened to us in North America is the 24 hour news creation because basically you had to have something to talk about 24 7 and so we create our own problems so I'm, I'm curious so at this point you know when you look at that as a topic back to the science and social but we can take it in different directions um you know are are we more or less arguing for the sake of arguing like at the end of the day you know you need parts of all of these things and and there is really no truth to it well, I've heard the saying that, you know, in a court of law, there are four truths. There's the plaintiff's truth, the defendant's truth, the judge's truth, and then there's the real truth. So who knows what the truth is? And I also said in my email to you, without truth, there is no reality. And I, I have to say I am a truth seeker. I, I want to know all sides of an issue, which I don't think are being taught in, in the school system or in post-secondary. They tend to be line up one area and uh, please don't think about this other area. So, uh, and that's been my experience. If you ever want a good read on that, there's a book called Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral, Dile the Moral Mess of Higher Education. It's very mm. quite insightful. Mm. Anyway, um, so, so there's three levels of credibility in my mind when you talk about a particular issue. And the first one is, and it doesn't float in a court of law, is I feel, my evidence is I feel this person's wrong. Well, sorry, that doesn't really allow me to do much with that. The second level would be I think. And thinking is good. But because I think does not mean therefore it is. Mm -hmm. So so then you have to transition to the next level. And I can be criticized <laughs> by your, uh, your listeners would be I know. And the question then, Scott, becomes what do I really know? Mm -hmm. So all problems have a spectrum. And the spectrum is left to right, and I don't mean that politically, but you've got people on one side saying this is the way it is, and you have people on the other side saying, no, it's over this way. And my point in all of this is, in the end, based on the information you've been given, what do you choose to believe? The mm -hmm. sad part of today's society is we live in a, in a, uh, a society of sound bites, mm -hmm. and people are trying to make up decisions, critical decisions, with very little information. And what offends me the most is when you try and discuss all sides of an issue and people are ideologically blind, they stop listening. Mm. If they don't hear, and it's called confirmation bias, if they don't hear what they already believe, I'm sorry, uh, they don't want to listen to it anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, because cognitive dissonance causes pain. The pain of saying, well, this conflicts with what I really believe. Oh, now what do I do? So make a long story short, the best you can do, in my opinion, is trying to understand all sides of an issue. And if you don't, it's hard to have a conversation about it. So I ask people three questions, Scotty. So let's say uh, let's, you can pick any topic you want. And I ask myself the same questions, not just the person I'm talking to what's your position on this particular issue? And it could be, let's make one up and call it climate change. Mm. And then the next issue would be, so what evidence do you have that supports this? Okay, most people fail at providing much at all at evidence because they're still at that superficial soundbite level. Mm. And then after they've tried to explain themselves, I say, well, what if you're wrong? What if that isn't the way it is? Well, that's a question they've never been asked. And that mm. causes a lot of distress. 
And I'm a lot of fun at a cocktail party because after a while I'm standing by myself in the corner because nobody wants to talk to me <laughs> because I ask tough questions and they don't have answers for it. Well, whatever. So that's the way it goes. Well, I, I, I love that as a, a topic of direction in the conversation because um, this leads to, I think, what we don't recognize, which is our ability to actually listen and ask good questions. Everybody wants to share their viewpoint or their opinion, but doesn't necessarily do a good job of, uh, and I can, uh, I will share in that uh, culpability. I think it's something I've learned to do better as I've gotten older. And part of building this podcast is the opportunity to ask questions to people who I have great respect for because it allows me to hear various opinions on different subject matters. So, you know, what is, what has taught you to, to ask good questions and, and how do you uh, cultivate your curiosity personally? You know, I think I've always been curious and I, I can't explain why. So um, growing up in a school on a farm and in a school that was close by, I would spend my spares reading encyclopedias in the hallway because I just wanted to know more stuff. So I think I've always had a natural curiosity. So then if you say the, the wrong things or if you say things that other people come back and say that's not right, and if you don't have a background to be able to defend it, then you're stuck. So to make a long story short, when I would sit in committee meetings or CATA meetings, I would hear lots of people, and I hate to use the term, but picking pepper out of fly shit because they're they're so deep into the into the micro component of this that they don't see the big picture. And I would try and stand back, see the big picture, and say, "Folks, you're rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. We got to stop the the water coming in the in the boat." And that would be my contribution: is to say, is try to do big picture thinking. Well, with that, I'm going to segue to my uh, purpose part of the <clears throat> podcast because I found this book a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born. It's written by an astrologist slash numerologist, Linda Joyce from New York City. And I found the book and I found my purpose in it. I found it per quite profound. So uh -huh. I, uh, I read it to everybody. So you are um, born, what was it, October 14th again? October 5th. 5th, sorry, that's it, my bad. You're a Libra five. I am. So you to your purpose is to realign your perspective and your identity so that it expresses your deepest truth and not the mask you show the world to use your many talents and great diversity to provide a service to others that will facilitate them in expressing their truth. After ecstasy, the laundry Zen statement. Libra fives are div divided between their need for the luxuries of the world and their need for truth. This is an identity crisis. If they don't discover who they are, they could spend their lifetime devoted to others. Libra fives are multi-talented, which makes clarity and single-mindedness of purpose more difficult. Restless and on the go, they can suffer from depression and fear. They long for intimacy, but are, are afraid of it. So they seek a partner who is distant and unattainable. And they may even idealize a relationship. Their fear of losing their individuality and freedom keeps them chasing dreams. The Libra Five should balance excess and perfectionism with faith. I think that's actually pretty darn accurate, Scott. Cool. What what it, what resonated in there with you? Um, I I do want to know the truth, and. Uh, uh, I have to, I laugh. I, I consider myself a raging introvert. And I know that you'll say, oh, no, you're not because of certain things. But most actually academics are introverts. So I, I say raging introvert. My wife is a raging extrovert, although that may be an exaggeration too. She can sing. She's, I often say she puts color in my black and white world. So, so that's where we complement each other. And I think it works very, very well. Um, but we have very strong and different opinions on a number of things, but we found a way to say, oh, okay, if uh, that's what you think, I'll support you in this and vice versa. So 
we've had our challenges, but frankly, we work through them. And I think that's the key to life is working through them and making them being successful. That's awesome. You um, were a founder of the Canadian Pro Rodeo Sports Medicine Program. That's a sport. <laughs> uh, that's a high intensity sport that sort of socioculturally, uh, not everybody really knows a lot about, but but the, those guys, when they're they're tough dudes, like, uh, what did you take away from your years of working in pro rodeo? Scott, I could write a book on some of the characters and some of the um, <laughs> happenings that occurred within rodeo. So, growing up on the farm, uh, many a number of my cousins were engaged in rodeo, and uh, we had a small uh, rodeo grounds at Carsland. And I think I rode steers there when I was 14 years old. Anyway, my claim to fame in rodeo is I rode in the Calgary Stampede in 1964 as a steer rider. Now, and, and that time, Slim Pickens was the clown at the rodeo. And if you remember him being a kind of a movie star, comedian type guy. And mm-hmm. so when Don Johansson, who at that time was a Canadian champion bull rider and was on the board for the Pro Rodeo, um, Canadian Pro Rodeo Association came to me when I was at U of C and said, you know, they have a Justin Healer program in the States. Why can't we do the same thing for Cowboys here? And so we said, well, let's try. So we did four rodeos that year. And I found it really quite entertaining. But I want you to know that you had to break the ice. Most people who looked at us said, who the hell are you and what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) And and it wasn't until after for the Canadian finals in Edmonton that we had a list of people that we saw and things we did. So I can tell you that success breeds success. And if you have early adopters within the rodeo community and their leaders within that group, they spread the word. And I think that that broke the ice for us the first year. It wasn't easy Mm -hmm. uh, because nobody would come to you and nobody knew. Uh, mm. what you knew and after a while when some people were recovering from or, or we identified problems that they should have dealt with um, the word spread and it worked well at the most recent 2019 world junior hockey championships in the czech republic team canada's number one goalie was nico dawes nico is a great story heading into his nhl draft year he was not on the canadian team's radar in the summer of 2019, Nico trained hard with the support of the great team at Shield Performance in Burlington, Ontario. He built up his body armor and lost 25 pounds. He came to the Guelph Storm camp in the best shape of his life and earned the number one spot for the defending OHL champs, and then earned his spot with Team Canada on one of the hockey world's largest stages. One of the tools used by Nico was the Matrix Fitness S-Force Performance Trainer. The S-Force is a no-impact, weight-bearing training tool that can improve fast-twitch muscle fiber, increase explosive performance, and support many conditioning objectives. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. For more information, please request the Matrix Fitness Sports Performance Package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Villeneuve, at matrixfitness.com. And mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. That's neat. I, I'm, I don't know if you'll be able to put a, like a, a timeline on it, but I'm just kind of curious. Like, if you look at the, the, all the, what I would call the big combative performance sports, uh, pro rodeo being one of them, um, you know, football, hockey, et cetera, over the, the last 40 years, <clears throat> definitely when you go back in those early years, you know, the athletic trainer therapist was essentially just there in case the whole world blew up, but everybody sort of didn't really want to go and see that guy. It was everybody's tough. They drank a lot. They partied a lot. They, you know, did all the things that they did. And then there was this sort of period of time where, the two entities sort of danced with each other to figure each other out. And now there, there really is a complete understanding of the value proposition. Do you remember when it sort of, when the tide started to change? Do you, do you remember that? I, I can remember the, the issues that instigated the change and that was money and science. Mm. So as people, I find that the more well-paid athletes are, 
uh, the more difficult sometimes they are to deal with. I can tell you early on, the cowboys were suspicious who we were, but with success, um, we became part of the rodeo family. And I mean that quite literally. They were the most appreciative, humble people as athletes I've probably ever dealt with. And I've, I value that. Mm. <clears throat> However, over time, as they become famous, rich, and uh, expecting that the world should revolve around and solve their problems for them, they become a little more problematic to deal with. Now, in fairness, 80% of the people are still the kind of people you want to work with, but there's becoming a fringe area where you go, oh my God, this person's a pain in the ass. They have a cranial rectal insertion. So then you say, okay, no problem. I will work with them, but I'm not taking any crap either. So we're going to have a pretty even playing field here. (laughs) What were some of the things that you learned growing up that you tried to impart to your kid that you felt were important human character traits that, um, maybe either were imparted to you by family members or you recognized were were important? I think um, working hard, uh, actually getting an education. All of our kids have post-secondary education. Um, I think when you have a two-parent household, and I'm not trying to uh, cause problems within the woke society, but I find with a mom and a dad, our kids appreciated the different roles we played and what we tried to do. And they, they had to deal with um, happiness and they had to deal with conversations that uh, where people disagreed, but, but, you know, that's part of life, Scott. That's how you learn to say, even though they disagree, it doesn't mean um, the world's going to fall apart. It just means that we have to work on, on better solutions for things. And frankly, the more emotional you get, the less, likely who are to come to a reasonable conclusion mm. and so and therefore goes the old saying you know um i need to go away and think about this before we can talk any more about it and so we do that mm. i'm reading a book right now called iGen which is sort of about the generation born post about 1996 who've never known life without sort of an iphone or an ipad and <clears throat> they're they're saying right now that um you know, this generation is really struggling with growing up and sort of understanding disappointment or um, failure and recognizing that that's actually a value proposition in in our personal growth. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, as you look back at your personal experience, and then you look now at what's going on in the in the universe, what do you recognize as uh, as maybe a failure proposition around that um, that we're not making our kids maybe deal with the challenges that they should deal with in some sense? I I can tell you it's generational, and I have grandsons. I have seven grandsons. Uh, I don't have any granddaughters, wow. which in a, in a sense is a <laughs> I regret. But I have a son and two daughters. The, the long story short. The majority, not all, um, seem to be fixated on computer games and and all the the other accoutrements that go with that. I think that that steals them away from reality. So here's my reality. When I grew up and I was out in the field on a tractor with a cultivator or doing seeding or whatever, and if something broke, you were by yourself. You had a toolbox and uh, you hoped the tools that were in it were sufficient to solve the problem, but you had to be creative with those tools in terms of how you might solve it. Here's my point. If people are left by themselves to solve a problem, you learn something. So when I would teach at Mount Royal, I teach an orthopedic assessment course. I would say that uh, 70 to 80% of that course were individually, I would sit down and do one-on-one assessment um, tests. So you, nobody could hide. And they had the, the, the pressure and the opportunity to, to go through a good learning and teaching environment. Um, when we started, I was kind and gentle and offered them suggestions. And towards the end of the course, it became more stringent because we were preparing them for the Canadian Athletic Therapist certification exam. 
Um, I, the other thing I, I found interesting, I said, you know, folks, if you BS me when I ask you a question, it's going to become more painful because I've got a lot more questions that go along with that. So they learned very early in the process to either say, this is what it is, or, you know, uh, I'm not sure, and I, I'm not sure about that, or I don't know. And to me, that was that was a pretty important lesson for them to learn. Mm. What's um, been the the greatest source of, I don't know what the word I could use is inspiration or, or gratification, et cetera, in the work that you've done, like working with all these different athletes, teaching um, the students, et cetera. What, what fills you um, or has filled you? Uh, the, the personalities you meet, the characters you meet and, mm the value that they bring. So I, I can go to a rodeo. I've been retired 10 years, but I can go to a rodeo. And if I see some of the cowboys that were around when I started, we have great conversation. We tell stories about a lot of things and there's a lot of stories to tell. Um, <laughs> I, I can, I, I can give you one example. We were in uh, swift current, Saskatchewan. We called it speedy Creek, of course. And uh, I had a, an, an American athlete come up who was a bareback bronc rider. And he was saying, you know, <clears throat> I had this problem with my knee, my knee swell up and, and I wasn't sure. So this guy was a rancher. He dealt with veterinarian issues. He says, you know, I, I took my knife and I, I stuck it in my knee and I drained it, you know, and I could really move my knee a lot better. He says, do you think that's a good idea? And I said, Chuck, <laughs> I said, I can see why that would help your knee move better, but I don't think it's a good idea. So then we had that conversation <laughs> about that. That's just one little tiny example of of the characters you get to meet in the conversations you have <laughs> and an example of what you know versus what you think <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> what what is what was you mentioned it a little bit earlier but i'd like to elaborate on it. what's been the most challenging thing about being you know good at what you did um when you look back at your career Scotty, I don't know anybody that doesn't second guess themselves and have insecurities around how good you are. And I, I can tell you, and it may not be unique to the medical profession, but you have people around you who um, challenge you all the time on whether you're right or not and whatever you're doing. I can remember being at a Pan American Games in Puerto Rico. And I, I, have, uh, I think I had a particular talent in terms of taping, strapping, and, and other things field-related. And yet I had a, a CHA-certified member from another province push me out of the way and said, no, no, we got to do it this way. Well, uh, you know, it's a challenge dealing with members of your own community mm. who, who create huge insecurities about saying, you don't know that, and uh, that's not right, and... And I'm right and you're wrong. And, and maybe that drives me too towards what is the truth and what are your thought processes that allow you to believe what you believe. So in the end, Scotty, you can have all this information, but the bottom line is what do you choose to believe? Mm. Cool. So you're retired now. Yes. And you uh, enjoy time. Where You're in California now, is that what you said? Yeah, we're just... Close to Palm Springs, we're in Palm Desert. Oh, nice. Nice and warm down there. Well, it was. It was 80 <clears> yesterday, <throat> and it's raining today. And it rains maybe five times a year, but it happens to be raining today. <laughs> maybe it's a good reason for you to be doing a podcast. Then. <laughs> yeah, that's good. No, perfect timing. With a boring character like me. On the other oh, side. no, no. You're one, you're one of the heroes in my life, Scotty, because you've... Uh, <laughs> You're again a person who has ambition, and uh, you make things happen. And I admire that. No, oh, that's nice. Thank you very much. We, you know, I'd like to speak about that, and not about that, but about our relationship because I was, um, you know, lucky enough to work with you on a committee, uh, the education committee. You came on. I think we twisted your arm to come on and spend some time <laughs> with us, and you you brought us this this sense of. Um, uh, wily uh, sp uh, experience and and history in what you brought. Can you 
remember, like most of the listeners won't give a crap about this conversation <laughs> because it's you. between you and I in some sense. Yeah. But I think the, the thread I want to take out of it is when you have an opportunity to mentor or to sit in a room with some people that you're younger people who you're in some sense inspired by, but at the same time are, are being asked to give, um, give that experience. What, what did you look, when you look back at that moment, like that, that time, what was empowering to you? What was valuable to you? What, what did you like about the mentorship proposition that, that you, you got to do in that, that situation? Uh, I like to have humor whether it's dark humor or regular humor, but it basically allows us to look at things and laugh at them and say, so what about this and what about that? So what did I bring to it? I thought I brought uh, the opportunity again for me to listen and then in the end to create an observation of what I thought the problem was. And generally speaking, most people would say, yeah, it's not A or B, it's it's a bigger picture. So to me, my satisfaction was showing them what the big picture was and that they're far too close to the problem. They got to stand back a little bit to see it if they really want to solve it. Mm, nice. I like that. So if, if I could sort of wrap that up in a, bu- in a bubble for problem solving, your viewpoint is that when you're trying to solve a problem, one, you should look at it from up close, but you should also try to get back away from it and look at look at it from a distance in some sense as well? Yes. So up close means that you're looking at it from one perspective. I always believe, and it's hard, um, to look at the problem from multi-perspectives. And people should teach there are multiple ways to solve a problem and there's multiple ways to look at a particular problem. Hmm. And you need to collect all of this information, pro and con, that spectrum idea, to finally get somewhere so, so I've often said that you, the people, um, the less you know about something, the easier it is to have a firm opinion about it. You know, Mark Twain had a great quote. He said, uh, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you, what you know for sure that ain't so. Mm-hmm. so. So I think that once you collect that information, you go through a process of cognitive dissonance, trying to synthesize it. And then at the end, whether you call it, actualization or whatever but there's a a variation of that where you go no this is what i believe and i feel comfortable and confident about it and i when asked the question uh, i can articulate why i believe a certain thing so to play off of that because you you earlier talked about the three questions you would ask somebody what what do you think should be the three questions or or one question or two whatever number it is questions we should ask ourselves before we launch into the diatribe of what we believe when we're in a conversation. So, so the three questions I asked ultimately are the ones you ask yourself prior to having a conversation with someone else. And the questions basically say, what's my position on this topic? What evidence do I have to support it? And what if I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. And, and once I, synthesize and work through all of that i'm comfortable having a conversation about it the alternative scott is somebody says well what do you think about the price of tea in china well i don't know anything about that so Mm -hmm. don't be afraid to confess the fact that you don't know things and listen to what other people have to say it's just a a continuum of collecting information and trying to make sense of it awesome so as you um live this life of retirement now what is what is your mission in retirement well the question what is the meaning of life and the uh dalai lama said happiness so whatever we're trying to do is is be happy stay connected with family and uh, in the end it uh, <laughs> this is the the wrong interpretation but uh uh, my tribe, my family, um, needs to be close and stick together. In some ways, I was taught that. In other ways, I think we still need to work on that with our kids and with our grandkids. I think the big challenge for me in life now is is trying to help the grandkids. I, our kids are well-established, but the grandkids are just going into, well, what job am I going to get? What education will I have? 
what's my purpose in life? Um, how do I survive all this? And, and to me, trying to connect with them. For example, our son-in-law and two of our grandsons are here now. And my wife, they've gone out for breakfast so that we can have a quiet time to have this conversation. But mm. I worry more about the, the future, um, be it politics, economy, etc., for my grandsons my grandkids than I do about anything else. Mm. Here again with another word from our sponsor, Zenkai Sports, the new disruptor in the performance apparel world. Zenkai uses a brand new technology that repels liquids, keeping you cooler during intense activity as the sweat evaporates naturally off your skin. This allows athletes to regulate body temperature easier and push themselves harder as we harness the power of our sweat. Sweat is our friend. Keep it on you. Zenkai Sports is also the only performance apparel company which is cotton-based. All of their gear is over 65% cotton and some pieces over 95%. Cotton is biodegradable, feels great against our skin, and is much better for our environment than synthetic-based apparel. Please go to ZenkaiSports.com for more information and for 20% off your entire order, just use the discount code LYM20. What's your biggest fear for them? Um, Opportunity. In today's society, we we tend to be it's identity politics and probably we've gone from a Marxist perspective of the proletariat and the worker to the oppressed and the oppressor. And apparently according to the woke society, um, white males are the oppressor and everyone else is the oppressed and therefore they are the victim. And, uh, uh, I have a problem with that because I believe these boys should have an equal opportunity. So, you know, that could take us into another area, Scott, where we say, so what's the scoop on transgender males moving from male to female competing in female sports? Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's, if uh, Tokyo or if Japan has the Olympics this summer, uh, there's going to be a real challenge there Mm -hmm. because there, there already are, physically males competing in female sports and they're taking all the medals away. They're taking all the success away. I think we need to deal with that somehow. Mm. Yeah. It is a very big topic these days for sure. I won't ask you where, well, where do you stand? Where do you stand on that topic? (laughs) Let me give you an example. What is your position on that topic? (laughs) The the state of Arizona, I think recently (laughs) passed a bill and they got it right. That, uh, Males transitioning to females, good for them, uh, won't compete with strictly biological females. Interesting. So, so whatever's fair and reasonable. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's where we always get into the um, the line in the sand. What is fair and reasonable? I think at the end of the day, my my biggest thing is context is king, and I think we don't spend enough time, you know, when we do look at problem solving or conditions of of situational dynamics. We don't always re- relate or understand the context and every context changes the, the, the reality in some sense, you know, like you mentioned, you're, you're an introvert and you may not express yourself as an introvert in a conversation with some people who you get along well with. And so their perspective is you're extroverted, but in essence, you're only extroverted in a certain situation. And if you ever read the book, um, the end of Aver- or the uh, age of individualization by Todd Rose. It's quite a good read, but I would recommend it. No, I agree with you, Scott. I, I I'm what I call a socialized extrovert. I'm an introvert, but in certain social contexts, I can be an extrovert, and it usually relates to the topic and what knowledge I have in a particular topic. Um, I, I always say, and I, I have to laugh. I said, beer makes introverts into extroverts or and and that also can stimulate a conversation because we all get smarter when we have a cocktail or two (laughs) i think that's a good way for us to end since uh, that's probably been our best uh some of our best conversations have been over a beer (laughs) they have indeed (laughs) dexter thanks for taking the time with me today it was fantastic to chat with you and so why I did this podcast is to have the opportunity to talk with people like you who I respect deeply and have always enjoyed the, the time spent and don't get to do it that often. So. Well, it, 
I'm flattered and it's a thrill for me to be able to do this. And when I look back at the other people that you've interviewed over a number of years, I think uh, I'm just, it's a privilege, frankly, for me to be part of this podcast. And, uh, and it's a privilege for me to be your good friend all these years. Thanks buddy. You have a good time and balm, palm, balmy yeah, palm, palm desert. You got it, buddy. <laughs> hey, hey, palm desert. Well, we got, we got some uh, tennis nationals coming up. The, uh, uh, in Indian Wells. Wells. So that, okay. Oh yeah. So we got some of that stuff going on and anyway, life is good. I can't wait to post a, a podcast and use that big belt buckle for. <laughs> yes. True. Fair <laughs> enough. And don't use that other picture of these uh, critters the be- that we had. The at the front. Yeah. 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 How old are you in that picture? Oh no, that's not me. And that's, that's why not I, you. Uh, no, oh, that's okay. not. So, so I would prefer that person not be. Uh, oh, okay. I won't yeah, use no that reason. one then. Cool. I thought that was you as a kid. No, cool. no. All right. You have a good day, sir. I thanks again, Scott. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.